You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful, O God, for the gift of Jesus Christ at Christmas. Lord, that you sent your own Son. Lord, in the likeness of man, as a baby, in humility, O Lord, to come and to conquer our enemy. O Lord, and you have done this work. O Lord, you promised your Son, you promised this one who would come, and he came. And now we, as a church, believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, O Lord, and your Holy Spirit is within us, and we can live and do your will and rejoice with you for eternity. And this is all because of your love, your mercy, your grace for us. And so, God, we ask that you'd be with us now. O Lord, fill us again, O God. Teach us from your word and remind us of the great promise of hope that you have given us. Lord, we thank you and we need you so desperately. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Please open up your Bibles to Genesis 3, verse 15. That will be um, where we'll be spending most of our time this morning. Today we'll be looking at this verse that points to the single greatest truth that any of us will ever need to know. God answers hopelessness with a promise. We'll be looking deeply into this verse, Genesis 3, 15, but like any promise that is given, we also have to go to see where it is fulfilled. And so we will, we will be looking through some multiple scriptures today, but primarily in Genesis 3, 15. But let's give some context here of what is going on in Genesis 3, 15. I'm sure you might have heard the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 before, but a quick recap. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created the heavens and the earth, that He filled it with land and sea and animals and plants and us, Adam and Eve. And he said that it was good. In fact, he said it was very good. Everything God creates is good. He gives them everything they need in the garden. The food, the the water, the, the company, the presence of God. He says to them, though, Don't eat of this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat it, you surely will die. And if they were to eat of that tree, they would be saying, I I rebel against you, God. I rebel against the Creator. I, I don't want to be a worshiper of God, but I myself want to be God. But at this point, God creates them, and God's People are living in God's land according to God's will. Everything is perfect. Harmony, peace, the presence of God. But we know that that doesn't last too long. Sin enters the world. Satan, as the serpent, comes in and deceives the man and the woman, and he says, did God really say Did God really say that about this tree? No, if you eat this, you will be made like God. 
And instead of believing God, they believe the lies of the serpent and they eat of the tree and all is lost. They have hopelessness. They're separated from the presence of God. They are filled with shame and guilt and sin. And the world we live in today is still damaged because of that action. We are still seeing the consequences of that sin that entered into human existence. You see, this wasn't the way it was supposed to be in one sense. We were supposed to be living in harmony with God. We were supposed to be with peace with God, with peace in this world. Is that what we see? I don't think so. Do we see peace on earth? Not really. See, our sin has major consequences. Just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we too sin against God. We too reach out and eat of that fruit from the forbidden tree saying, I want to not only be a worshiper of God, instead, I want to be God. We're filled with pride and self-sufficiency and sin, and we cause so much destruction in our own lives and in this world. Just death and destruction, this long history of death and destruction and death and destruction since the fall. Hopelessness, hopelessness. Because of our sin, we damage one another. Because of other people's sins, they damage us. Our selfishness is so deep. But deep down in our hearts, we feel like there must be something better. This world can't just be it. But at Christmas, we can feel this tension, this pain all the more, as the holidays have this way of sort of bringing up past hurts. Or maybe this is the first Christmas without a certain someone in your life because of death. And you're like, this is hard. This is hard. And death in this world is a consequence of sin. Or maybe there's sickness, again, a consequence of sin in this world. And even the title of our message today, which is Promise Fulfilled, you look at that and you think, Promise Fulfilled? I was promised so much and none of it's been fulfilled. My life was supposed to look like this, it didn't happen. As a child, I was promised so much and I have trust issues because of that. Promise fulfilled. I feel hopeless. This world is full of pain. I, like Adam and Eve, have disobeyed and feel hopeless. Where can I go? What can I do? Everything is hopeless. But in the middle of hopelessness, God speaks. And He speaks a promise. And He says this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, God enters and He speaks life and hope into the darkest of situations. It's so easy for us to gloss over this scripture, and maybe it's a little confusing at times, and maybe we don't quite understand it, but what you need to know is that God has made an incredible promise to people that were absolutely without any hope. They had no hope. They had sinned. They were ashamed. 
And God here says, miraculously, amazingly, He says to them, through the seed of the woman, through the offspring of the woman, someone will come who will crush that enemy who has deceived you, and there will be victory. We need this promise today just as much as Adam and Eve needed it then. We need hope because we are unable to fix this world. We're unable to fix our own lives. We're unable to deal with the sin that indwells within us. We need God's promise, and we need it fulfilled to have any hope. So let's look at our points for today. God's promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the amazing promise of hope God makes in Genesis 3.15. You see, we have two points today, and the first point is very much about what Jesus Christ accomplishes in fulfilling this promise. In our second point, we're going to get to us, all right? But in our first point, let's all just, as the body of Christ, as believers in Jesus Christ, for a second, not think of ourselves and our problems, but just cast our gaze upon the amazing work of what Christ has done and enjoy who He is. That is our first point. Because He fulfills this promise in two ways. Look at what Christ does. First, in His birth. In His birth. Look at the text again. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and you, uh, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What can we see in this verse, right? There's conflict. There will be enmity between the serpent and the woman, and not only between them, but between their offspring. There will be a lasting battle and hatred between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So our first question, though, is this, who is he? Who is his? In the latter part of this verse, uh, we see this character introduced. It says, he will bruise your head. He will. Who is this he that God is referring to? You see, the word offspring or seed, as it's translated in some verses, it can have a singular or a plural sense to it, okay? So, for example, um, I have two kids. I talk about them as much as I possibly can, so here's a good opportunity. Um, I have two kids, Levi and Jude. And so you could say, you could say, Daniel's offspring are Levi and Jude. Totally good. Plural. You could also say, Daniel's offspring is Levi. Singular. Still acceptable. Still makes sense. And this verse has so many layers and, 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 and meaning to it. We'll get to that. But right now we see that the offspring of the woman is referring to he, singular, one person, one person that would come. That's what's going on here. God is pointing to one person that will come through the seed of the woman, and that person will defeat the serpent. The hope has already begun. There's a long road ahead, but there is a promise made from God. Even though Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled, God makes a promise. Even though we sin and rebel, God makes a promise. I wonder if Adam and Eve, when they're hearing this, um, their ears perk up a little bit, right? right? They've sinned against God. They, they're instantly filled with shame. They try to cover themselves. They're, you know, God comes and He 
He's obviously pretty angry. He's figuring out, asking them questions, what went on here, what's going on here, and he starts handing out punishments, and he starts with the serpent, and Adam and Eve are probably standing there like, oh, great, I'm next, I'm next, I'm next. This is going to be awful. What's going to happen? And as he's handing out this punishment to Satan in verse 14, he says to the serpent, uh, you will uh, swarm on your belly. You will be a dust eater the rest of your days. And he, then he says in 15, and through the seed of the woman, someone's going to come that will crush your head. And I wonder if their ears just perked up. Wait, what? Someone from us is going to come and defeat this ancient enemy? The promise has become, or has begun at this point, and the promise is remade and retold and reaffirmed throughout Scripture. All of the Old Testament really could be summed up as a promise of the coming Messiah. The hope of being saved and that it would be realized. And in Genesis 12, we see this promise perk up again. God is speaking to Abraham, and in Genesis 12, 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then down in verse 7 of chapter 12 in Genesis, God says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Speaking of the promised land, to your offspring, I will give this land. We see this word offspring show up again. Now, who is he talking about? Is it a singular use or a plural use of the word? It's singular. And we know this because Paul clarifies it in Galatians 3.16. He says to the church, he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and to clarify, he puts an S on the end. He says, it does not say into his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul is making the same point, that when God is talking to Abraham, he's talking about this one who would come. God is still pointing to the one that would come from the seed of the woman and conquer the enemy. The history of the world goes on, and this promise remains, and it becomes more specific and retold again and again. Let's look at another one. How about in Isaiah 7, 14? God is getting more specific about this coming offspring. He says, therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. It's miraculous. And we see in Matthew 1, 21 to 23, this is fulfilled in the birth of Christ. She will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How does he do that? Crushing the head of the enemy? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Micah 5.2, we actually even see hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, not only that He'll be born, that He'll come from the seed of the woman, not only that we'll call Him Emmanuel, not only that He'll be born of a virgin, but where geographically He's going to be born. God continues to get more and more specific. He says He's going to be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. 
And when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, as you know the story, there's a great star put above. And the wise men come and they're searching for this Messiah. They're seeking out where this star is. And they go to King Herod of the day and, and they ask him, um, where is the Messiah in your scriptures? Where is he to be born? In Matthew 2, 3 to 6, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He didn't want anyone else to be king. He wanted to be king in all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He got together all the religious leaders, all the scribes, all the people that knew the Bible well. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in this land of Judah, there by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." We see that Jesus is the offspring that was promised in the garden. He is the one who would come by the seed of the woman, and in His birth He fulfills this promise. He who was promised to Abraham, who was promised to Isaiah, who was promised to Micah, and so many other places in Scripture, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But why is Jesus needed? Why does Jesus need to be born? What's so special about this specific offspring? You could say, great, okay, he said a guy's going to come, but why him? Why him? What's the difference? Why not someone else? Well, after the man and the woman sinned, after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God knew that they would not be able to save themselves. God knew that they're now sinful, their, their sacrifice is unworthy, they could not pay the debt to repay their sin. And so instead, He sends His own Son, Jesus Christ, who lives a perfect life, who was born of a virgin and not tainted by the flesh and by sin. God had Him come to save us. The offspring needed to be God Himself and in Emmanuel, God with us. And he promised that he would come in the likeness of man to save his enemies. If you're still in hopelessness right now, this promise is for you today. The longing of your heart is telling you, maybe right now, that this life just can't be all it is. That this world just isn't right. That we shouldn't see death and destruction and death and destruction but we should have peace. Listen to your heart, it's right. It's the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your heart telling you, no, there is more. A baby has been born of the seed of the woman who was promised so long ago to save us. I love the verse and the story in, in Luke uh, chapter 2, talking about Simeon. And Simeon was a righteous man, the text says. And, and Simeon was in the temple, and, and um, Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus to the temple, and, and Simeon got to hold baby Jesus, and, and the Lord had told Simeon that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. And so Simeon is there, and he's holding the Messiah, the promised, the promised one. 
And Simeon looks upon the face of Jesus and he says, Lord, your servant can depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. How do you look upon Jesus? Can you look upon Jesus right now and see the salvation of God? Have you looked upon Jesus and accepted him as your Savior? Because he is the hope of the world. He is the hope that has come. We see that this promise has been filled been fulfilled in Jesus through his birth, and now we also see that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus' victory, in his victory. Look at the text again, Genesis 3. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We know that the offspring of the woman referred in this text is Jesus. We see that. He came and he was born and he fulfilled the promise. But look at the conflict here in the text. This offspring says, will bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise his heel. See, the bruise to the head is speaking of a mortal wound, right? To the cranium. He crushes his head, and he kills him, and he destroys him, and he defeats him. Meanwhile, the enemy is only able to nip at his heels. Something maybe a war wound, but something that he will recover from. See, God is promising that not only will one come as an offspring of the woman in the flesh, but this person will come and he will destroy the enemy in battle. He'll win the fight. And so Christ comes, God incarnate, perfect, and prophecy continues. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 42 verse 3 speaks again of this promise and the work of this one who is to come. And in Matthew 12, 20 to 21, Matthew quotes Isaiah, and he's saying that it's fulfilled in Christ. This is what it says in Matthew 12, 20, 21. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Who are the Gentiles? It's us. You see, this is our hope. This is who we can hope in. This is, this is who we can hope in because we know this world isn't the way it should be. Jesus Christ brings justice to victory for the Gentile. See, we deserve justice. Because of our sin, just like Adam and Eve, we deserve justice. We deserve hell. We deserve punishment for our sin, but God takes the justice that is due for us and He brings us into victory. Hebrews 2.14 is even more specific. The writer says this, since therefore the children share in, the fle- in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook in the same things. We are flesh and blood. God came down. Jesus came down and became flesh just like us that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. You see, through Jesus Christ, in his death, he is victorious. He conquers that old enemy. He conquers our ancient foe. He disarms Satan, and he casts him into shame. 
You see, for Jesus to have victory, he had to become flesh. And in his death, he pays the perfect, sinless sacrifice for our sin, and he is victorious. One question that comes up is why was the death of Christ necessary to defeat Satan? Couldn't have God done it another way? Why does the death of Christ bring victory over the devil? Well, let's see. What was the mission? What is the mission of the devil? What is the mission of Satan? From the beginning, to deceive us into believing a lie that we would sin against God and not be worshipers of God, but be worshipers, worshipers of self. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. And in Jesus Christ coming and living and dying a perfect life and dying in that way, he throws our sin away, and now we have access to the Father again. He disarms the one tool that Satan had to accuse us of. No longer is our sin counted against us. No longer can the enemy stand over us and say, ha ha, you are accursed because of your sin. No, we can look to Christ and say, no, I see the salvation of the Lord and in him I have righteousness. His victory is complete over Satan. And in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, it describes what Christ did when he died on the cross. It says this, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, Jesus Christ defeated and took away the tool the enemy had over us, and he is victorious over him. We've seen the promise fulfilled from Genesis 3 in Jesus Christ. He was born. He fulfilled the promise in his birth. He, he fulfilled the promise in his victory in defeating that ancient foe, defeating Satan. And now we see how else it is fulfilled. Here's our application. God's promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ for me. God's promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ for me. God made this promise, and He fulfills it in part for us. God made this promise with a mission. He sent Jesus as we saw, Christ defeated the serpent, and now we see how the, He fulfills the promise in me first. First, in my rebirth, in my rebirth. Look at the text again. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A major, another major question that comes up from reading this text is, who is the offspring of the serpent? Who's the offspring of the serpent? We see the offspring of the woman, referring to one in Jesus Christ, but he also talks about the offspring of the serpent. Who is that? 
It says that he will bruise the head of the serpent, not the offspring, but this offspring is left hanging there in the middle of this text. Who are they? Who are they? I think the answer to this um, is in Ephesians 2, 1, 1 to 3. I'm going to read this text over you. It says this, and you were dead. This is Paul speaking to the church. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Who's the offspring of the serpent? It's us. It's us. Yes, in a, in a physical sense, we're the offspring of the woman. But in a spiritual sense, we're the offspring of the serpent. Jesus said to the people in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So here's the question. Who, whose offspring are you? Whose offspring are we? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever, have you ever bent the truth to benefit yourself? Have you ever hid the truth so that you wouldn't get caught? You see, all of us have done this. Why? Because we are the offspring of the serpent. As Jesus says, you are like your father, the devil, who is the father of lies. And your will is to do your father's desires. We are born into sinful flesh and our flesh is sinful, and in our own actions, we, we act out sin in our lives. We lie. But thankfully, because of this promise, because of the victory of Christ, we can be reborn. You must be reborn. You must be born again, because we are spiritually of the wrong offspring. We need to be saved from this long history of damning family seed. You might say, I come from a good family, but the reality is, is not really, not in the flesh. We come from the offspring of the serpent. We must be reborn. Jesus lays this out to Nicodemus in John 3. It's really well. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, you can't be born only once. You need to be reborn. You need to be born again. We've all been born of the water. We've all been born in flesh. But have you been born in the spirit? Because that which is flesh is flesh, but that which is spirit is spirit. Because then your sin will be covered by the blood of Christ, and you can stand before God as a child of God, reborn into His family. Adoption is a beautiful thing. Um, you know, there's, there's these children who are in need, and um, good people come in and say, I'll give them a home, and take them in and raise them as their own, and they become part of, of that family. Um, I was doing a little bit of research this week, and in Canada, there's, there's so many children that need to be adopted that are looking for homes, and they say that the majority of children that need to be adopted are over the age of six. You'll say, well, why is that? Why is that? And I think in part, um, often when people go out to adopt a child, they, they want to adopt a, a newborn. They want to adopt the child as young as possible. And maybe for good reasons, they think, well, if I, if I bring in an older child, uh, um, he might already or she might already have a lot of emotional scars. It might be really hard to integrate them into our family. It might cause a lot of disruption into our family. They'll have already known other parents. They won't ever see me as mom or dad. And, and that might be true. It might be untrue. I mean, it's just reality. But what it does say as... A society, um, we think that there's a point where someone is so far gone or so maybe scarred or emotionally hurt or whatever that they're almost unlovable. Like it's hard, it'll be very hard to love them. But the reality is, is that we all need adoption, every single one of us. We've all gone so far. We have all sinned like our first parents. We all have scars. We all think that maybe I've gone too far and I am unlovable. You see, but God looks at you and He sees everything you've ever done. He sees everything that's ever been done to you. And He loves you so much, and He desires to adopt you so much, regardless of how long you've been around, that He gave His own Son so that He can adopt you, that He can adopt me. He wants to adopt you into His family, into a family that is full of love, mercy, and joy, pulling you out from the serpent's family and His offspring of sin, pain, misery, and destruction. He gave up his own son so that he could have you. He looks at your pain. He looks at your sin. And he makes all things new. And you are reborn, born again into the family of God. You see, we must become a new creation, reborn into the family of God, holding on to the victory in Christ so that we can be born again. 1 Peter 3 says that for Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see, Christ died once for all so that if we believe in him, his righteousness, his perfection would be put onto me, a sinner, onto you, a sinner, that we can then be reconciled with God and be made a child of God and alive in the Spirit. Are you alive in the Spirit? Have you been brought to God by the powerful work of Christ on the cross? Have you accepted this work that he has made? Have you accepted this work that took an unlovable orphan like myself and made me into a loved child of God? Because that's the only way you can be born again. That's the only way you can switch from being the offspring of the serpent and adopted into the family of Christ. Believe, accept this work of Christ on the cross, the victory that he has over the enemy. He is the promised offspring who defeated him for you so that you can have salvation, that our sin would be put on Christ and his righteousness would be put on us. Praise the Lord. So God fulfills his promise in Jesus and his birth and in his victory. God fulfills his promise in Jesus for me in my rebirth and in my inherited victory. An inherited victory. You see, this is amazing. Not only does God make this promise, send Christ and in his birth fulfill part of that promise and then defeat the enemy and fulfill the other part of the promise. He allows us to be born again and be adopted into his promise, but he allows us to be a part of the victory and actively be victorious with him. Today, we are victorious with Christ if you believe in him. Becoming born again, becoming reborn doesn't end there. We live a life that is victorious over Satan's sin and death. Satan has been defeated and one day will be destroyed, but death no longer has dominion over us. Through Christ, we are victorious over death. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, and 57 says this, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, because God has fulfilled this promise in Genesis 3, we no longer need to live a hopeless life. There is hope. We will not be confined to the punishment of death, but we will live forever in victory in our new family with Christ. So often we say this in our evangelical circles, and it's right and it's good. We say, uh, we do not have a work-based salvation. It's true. But in another respect, it's completely untrue. You do have a work-based salvation, but it wasn't your work. It was the work of Christ. He did the work because you were unable. He did the work for his church because we were unable to satisfy the wrath of God. A great work has been accomplished. A great victory has been wrought, and we are the beneficiaries of it. It's an inherited victory. I don't like using too many sports analogies. I feel like I lose too many people. 
But I think we can all relate to the Olympics, right? Every couple years, the Olympics comes around and we send our Canadian athletes out there and one of these Canadian athletes wins a gold medal and we go, we won! We won! Yes! Yes! And we gloat, yes, we've won a gold! And the reality is we've done nothing to accomplish anything. And we see an American friend and we go, ha ha, we beat you! And the reality is, is they didn't lose and we didn't win. It was athletes in another country somewhere else. But why do, I, why do we identify with that? The reason we claim that victory is, is, is because as, as the Canadian athlete stands on the podium and receives the gold medal, they wrap themselves in a Canadian flag. And we go, that's us. We get to share in that victory. And as Jesus died on the cross and received all the glory and honor from the Father, Jesus wraps himself around us, and we claim that which we did not earn. We get the victory. Romans 16, 20, referencing right back to Genesis 3, 15, says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Church, get on your stomping boots because the victory that Christ had over Satan is your victory. And you will actively, because of the God of peace, you will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. It's amazing how we're included into Christ's victory. We can actively be killing sin in our lives. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has sealed us in the blood of Christ. We've been adopted into a new family, and we no longer listen to the words of the enemy accusing us anymore, saying that we are not worthy. We say, maybe not me, but Christ who is in me. We no longer need to live in hopelessness. The hope of the world has come. This Christmas, we can look back and see what happened in Bethlehem and enjoy and revel in the promise that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That we can be reborn because of his birth. That we can inherit his victory because he is victorious. You see, we didn't deserve it, but that's grace. We couldn't earn it, but that's mercy. We weren't worthy, but that's adoption. And we had nothing, but that's inheritance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is so true, O God, that we are undeserving, that we have nothing, O Lord, but you are so good. O Lord, and you looked at us as enemies, as offspring of the serpent, who had willfully, O God, chosen sin, and you looked at your enemies and you said, I want them to be my children. And you sent your son to die so that we may have life. And so God, I pray, O oh Lord, would you remind us again of this truth. Lord, would it cause us to be even more in love with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for those who have not believed in Jesus Christ, O oh God, I pray that today would be a day of salvation for them. That they would be born again into the family of God. Oh Lord, we love you, we need you, oh God. Please, oh Lord, give us more of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.